Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your great grace so beautifully pictured to us in the gospel, recorded for us in your written word, the account of your living word. And as we turn now to this word, oh God, we pray that you would open our hearts. God, would you guard error from the things that I say so that what we hear would be that which your spirit desires by the words that might open hearts and eyes to the truth of who you are, the God of the Bible, and that we may be made more into your image, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of our journey with the people of Israel in their exodus from Egypt. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of Exodus and find chapter 19? Exodus 19. And although this isn't the final chapter in this amazing story, this will be our last look at God's self-revelations to his people as he provided them with freedom through the leadership of his prophet Moses. When we began, if you can recall back that far, we acknowledged that while Exodus is a rescue story in which God delivers his people from the harsh hand of Pharaoh, it's also a story of revelation. After 400 years of slavery, marked by exposure to Egypt's culture, values, and religion, the Israelites had only vague notions of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew that the God of their ancestors had, had promised them a land and that he would rescue them from Egypt. However, they had no idea when it would happen or how or through whom. And thus, when Moses arrived and introduced the elders to Yahweh, it was a learning experience for them all. And church, we noted how similar we are, particularly we in the Western Hemisphere, to these Israelites. Because many of us, I believe, have grown up hearing about God and about the Bible. We've heard that he blesses the USA and that our forefathers, even our founding fathers, trusted in him. And therefore, we do too. But beyond the fact that he made everything, loves everything, everyone and has promised eventually to return, we're in the dark. The God that many claim to know today sits right alongside of the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy, Santa Claus on their shelf of venerated beings. He's no more real in existence or relevant in presence than the dream catchers that many people have hanging on their rearview mirrors. Have you seen those? This God serves to scratch our itch for religious insurance in the case of a catastrophe. And he marks our calendar for ensuring patriotism that's dutifully expressed. But that's all. We, we really don't know him, what he wants or wills, because we don't examine his word in which he tells us. Rather, for many, God's character consists of the conflation of a host of individually selected elements that we find personally pleasing. God's kind of like the, the Disney character Bing Bong. If you've seen the movie Inside Out. Has anybody seen Inside Out? All right, Bing Bong. For those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, Bing Bong was the imaginary character who lived in the dreams of a young girl. And his appearance was a mixture of a cat's body with an elephant's head. He made the sound of a dolphin, and whenever he cried, he cried candy. And he was pink in complexion. So the point is, Bing Bong was crafted from all the different things that this little girl loved. But he wasn't real. 
And friends, neither is the God or the gods that many people, I believe, in our nation claim today. And I say this because the character that they describe and the sentiments that they then attribute to this character do not reflect the truth revealed in Scripture. So they hold to a God who cares nothing for sin. He loves everyone and simply wants us to just get along. And his ultimate purpose in creating the universe was to allow us the freedom to enjoy ourselves. And ultimately, if we are sincere enough, we'll all find our heart's desires. And this is just one of the bing-bong-like gods that are acknowledged in our culture today. However, despite their varied expressions, I do believe that for most of them, they share the principal attribute of love. They omit all concern for sin, people's sin or personal failings, and everyone provides salvation, but based on merit. And the tragedy of this theistic ignorance is that like bing-bong, he eventually disappears. And so too will the gods of your creation. Church, we must not be like the world who create their God to serve their purposes. Instead, we must be like Israel before us and know God as he has revealed himself, therefore, on his terms and by his expressions. And this is what we've sought to do if you've been with us over the past three months. And we've seen together as we've journeyed through the book of Exodus, we've seen how the God of the Bible has presence. He speaks and he sees, he makes promises and he keeps promises. He knows the future and he's selective He is all-powerful. He's completely trustworthy. Our God is sovereign. He is all authority. He cannot tolerate sin, and yet he involves people in his plans where he judges justly and he saves graciously. The God of the Bible also leads his people. He protects his people. He tests his people, and he heals his people. And this morning, we're going to see a further self-revelation of God as we read from Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. And so, would you follow along as I read our text? Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel encamped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back. And summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And let's stop right there for a moment. As we get started, I want to first acknowledge I am fully aware that by picking the story back up here in chapter 19, we've skipped, if you've been with us, we've skipped three chapters. However... There is only so much that we can cover in a single time. And while God's provision of manna and quail, the water from the rock at Horeb, protection from the Amalekites, and a visit 
from Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. They're all incredible stories which precede chapter 19. I want to conclude our series here at Sinai because this is a pivotal point in Israel's journey and one in which I believe we see God reveal the essential truth that he meets personally with people. The God of the Bible meets personally with people, much like we talked about with our children, only in an infinitely grander scale. And I see this reality reflected in two verses which we just read. First in verse 3, where it says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob. That's the first half in this first verse. And then the second is in verse 8, which reads, The people all responded together, We will do everything. The Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. In this interaction here at Sinai, I believe that God set the precedent for a sanctuary. A sanctuary meaning a specific place in which his presence was specially manifested for the purpose of meeting with his people. In other words, the the summit of Sinai became a temporary point of contact between the supernatural and and the natural, between the creator of the universe and his creation, between God and people. At Sinai, God met with his people through an intermediary. Now, some of us may wonder, well, why is this such a big deal, Andrew? Because to this point, hasn't God gone before Israel in the desert as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? And the answer is yes. His presence has accompanied his people throughout their wilderness wanderings, as we've seen together. So what then makes this experience different? Let me show you. First of all, this encounter is interactive. This encounter is interactive. Whereas in the desert, God's presence simply went before the people, at Sinai, God personally speaks to Moses who then informs the people of all that God desires. And not only does God speak, but the people respond as they then inform Moses of their decision, who then conveys it to God. In contrast to the people's following of a cloud, his people here in the desert, in this meeting between God and the people, information is being shared. Verbal communication is taking place. Communication that is between God and people. And church, our God still communicates with us today. The God of the Bible isn't mute. He hasn't ceased to speak. And as we've pointed out previously, he still interacts with people. He hasn't changed. However, his methods have. The writer of Hebrews informs us in chapter 1, verse 1, that in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. This is Jesus. And friends, in this book, we have the record of all of this, the prophets in the old and God the Son in the new. The Bible is God's final word to us, meaning he isn't revealing new things, new plans and new purposes. The canon is closed, but his ears, God's ears remain open to the prayers of his people. At Sinai, God's personal encounter with his people was interactive. It was also intimate. His encounter with his people on Sinai was intimate as he accommodated his creation in and through the spoken word. And friends, I I realize that this notion might be vague for us this morning, but just consider the impersonal nature, if you can say it such, 
of following a cloud. Can you put yourselves in the shoes or sandals of an Israelite for just a moment. Can you imagine the experience of wandering through the desert in pursuit of a huge cloud, supernatural or not? I mean, rising every morning, poking your head out of the tent and taking a peek just to see if we can stay for another day and rest or if it's time to start packing up and moving. Glancing in that cloud's direction over the course of every day just to make sure you were informed as to what was taking place. I would imagine that such sensitivity would quickly get old. In our text this morning, verse 1 stated that Israel's been doing this already for three months. And so consider the impersonal, albeit impressive, nature of God's leading to this point. Only now, God speaks. You hear God's voice using words that, that you can understand that create emotions and impart information. How, how might you feel now? And just to illustrate and to build on the analogy used with our children, but I remember the first time that I saw Melinda, and I've shared this before, but we were at a retreat for incoming college students, and she sang a special music during one of our evening worship sessions, and I was just amazed at both this woman's beauty as well as her abilities, and I was inst inst instantly interested, but I realized that the chances of us going to the same college when there were over 100 students at this retreat was small, and so being a wise young man, I knew not to set myself up for inevitable disappointment. And so I chose to satisfy myself by following her from afar. I chose to trail this beautiful young woman by following this pillar of fire with naught but my eyes. Until on the final night, I discovered that, lo and behold, this woman was going to Washita where I was going to school. And so after my brief personal celebration, my happy dance, I made a point of speaking to this girl. And she spoke back. <laughs> in church, it's hard to put into words how I felt in that moment. Following Melinda with just my eyes provided a certain measure of comfort, but hearing her address me with words, it took that experience to a whole other level. Can you relate to that this morning? Guys, I know you can. There is something intimate about words and the meanings the sentiments that they convey. Here on Mount Sinai, God met personally with his people in a way that was interactive, intimate, and also isolated. Isolated. And I'm using this term to mean distinct from or separated from, which I believe is a point clarified by verse 20, which we didn't read a moment ago. And so if you would look back at chapter 19 and find verse 20. Exodus 19.20. In the verses that precede this, God gives Moses elaborate instructions regarding the mountain and his people's interaction with it. He also gives specific instructions as to how they are to have prepared themselves for what takes place. And in verse 20, we're told, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So the very thing that we read about in verse 3. A personal meeting takes place that's interactive, it's intimate, and as we're about to see, clearly isolated. As Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. That's some serious isolation, isn't it? And in all of the people's interactions with Yahweh thus far, proximity has played no part. In fact, if anything, they've been encouraged to remain close to God's presence as whenever the cloud moved, 
They moved. Whenever it stopped, they stopped. The people's physical distance to God went unmentioned. Not so at Sinai because of the personal nature of this move. Here at Sinai, God himself stepped out of heaven to meet with Israel. Thus, in a manner like Moses' encounter with the burning bush, the ground, the very ground became like God is holy. The mountain took on the very perfection of God's being. And so as Moses had been instructed to remove his sandals before the bush, here at Sinai, the people were directed to remove themselves from the mountain. Yahweh's holiness is such that nothing impure can be where he is and live. God is so pure as to be unapproachable. His glory so overwhelming that to stand in his presence is impossible. And yet, God desires to meet with his people as is evidenced by all that we see taking place here in our text. He desires that his people be with him and, and know his heart. And therefore, he gave Moses clear instructions aimed at revealing himself to them and ensuring that they could experience him in his glory without being consumed. And to this end, in verse 10, there in chapter 19, the Lord gives Moses these instructions. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits on the people or for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him, whether man or animal. He shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. What I believe God reveals in these verses is the necessity of holiness when meeting with him personally. And the act of consecration, as it's mentioned there, means to make holy or literally to make as belonging to God. And when coupled with the command to wash clothes, along with abstaining from sexual relations, that's mentioned in verse 15, it's clear that God was showing Israel the necessity of being spiritually and physically prepared to meet with him. And just to clarify, the need to remove dirt from clothes and to abstain from sex does not reflect the evil nature of either of these things. For such reasoning would fail to appreciate the fact that God created them both, didn't he? Both sex and dirt. And in the beginning, he, he said that they were good, very good. The point here is, I believe, simply the significance of being prepared to meet God. This wasn't a simple soap up and run to the mountain. What Moses is prescribing here is a three-day elaborate preparation during which time the people would forego all self-serving activities focused upon their personal pleasure and instead they would spend that time in self-reflective personal prayer. Now, to be clear, the people's washing and abstaining did not make them holy as God is holy. Let me say that again. The people's Washing and abstaining did not make them holy as God is holy. They're taking three days to personally prepare to meet God is not what qualified them to witness all that took place on Mount Sinai. And I say that because even after their adherence here in our text, we see that these practices, don't miss, they, they are still prohibited from setting foot on the mountain, are they not? They couldn't even touch its base 
without incurring the death penalty. And that one enforced from a distance so that no one else would come under God's judgment for failing to obey his commands. No, the people's preparation didn't merit them a personal meeting with the God of the universe. It simply taught them the truth that he was wholly unlike any of the gods that they had ever heard of or seen worshipped while they were in Egypt. Yahweh wasn't a god of rock or, or metal that could be kissed, caressed, or otherwise physically manipulated and therefore approached casually. No, the Lord could only be encountered with the greatest of care and utmost humility, and only then when he allowed it. Because you notice how verse 13 concludes there? It says, only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. And this wasn't the sound to be instigated by any Israelite. This was the sound by which the Lord himself would summon the people into his presence. And Emmanuel, church, this reality of God's holiness and our need for humility, for reverent fear and awe when entering his presence, be it in corporate or private worship and prayer, this is a reality that I feel is tragically absent from many of our churches today. As Christians in the United States, we have been so largely influenced by the individualism and market freedom espoused by 18th century thinkers as a nation built on systems that serve the individual both economically and commercially, politically. It is little wonder that our theology shares this focus, isn't it? And thus, we tend to approach God with a sense of merit that views God as starved of my attention and he's grateful for my affection. For many today, we flippantly run into God's arms where the riches of his love are always enough. We don't need to concern ourselves with sin. Why? For nothing compares with his embrace. His arms are always open wide, regardless. But church, absent from our many contemporary expressions of worship is an appreciation for God's holiness. The isolation that we see God establishing in regards to his meeting with the people at Sinai today goes completely unmentioned. Instead of focusing on God's love, or rather, instead, we focus on God's love, on his promise to bless, to always provide, to give us everything we need. It starts to sound more and more like bing bong the further we go. Now, don't get me wrong. God is love. God is gracious. He is merciful, forgiving, and he has promised to bless us. However, he is also holy. He's the same God today as he was when he met with his people on Sinai. So what's changed? Has anything changed? Does, God, does God's personal meeting with his people still entail isolation? And I believe the answer to this question is a resounding yes, which is then explicated in a fourth point to be made this morning. And so thus far, we've seen that God's personal meeting with his people is interactive. It's intimate. It's isolated. But now I believe we need to see how it requires must have an intermediary. On Mount Sinai, God met personally with his people, but all of his dealings came through who? Moses. Moses. God spoke to Moses, who then carried God's words to the people, even in the instances in which they heard God directly. Described verse 9. Moses still restated all that they previously heard. And he served to convey all that the people said as well. Verse 8, which we read earlier, the people all informed Moses as to their decision, and then we read he brought their answer back to the Lord. Was there any reason for him to do that? Had God not already heard 
I mean, we know the answer. We know that God can hear and that he knows everything. So why then didn't God deal directly with his people? Why speak to them through an intermediary? And I believe the answer is that this was God's plan to fulfill his gospel purposes. And so let me show you why. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, several books later, verse 15, we have the record of Moses informing the people of this, speaking prophetically. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Why? For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God nor see this great fire anymore or we will die. And so for those wondering what took place at Horeb, well, this is in fact a reference to the very assembly that we're looking at together this morning in Exodus 19. And so what took place at Horeb is all that took place while the people were encamped at Sinai. And the fire that's referenced there is that which follows the Lord's meeting with the people which we're studying. And it's actually described two chapters later in Exodus 20, verse 18, where it says, When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But don't have God speak to us or we'll die. The people saw God's awesome glory displayed in nature as a storm marked by fierce lightning and earth-shattering trembles, and they were overcome with fear. And they realized that they could not stand in this God's presence. After all that they'd experienced of the deities of Egypt, they realized standing at the base of this mountain, we can't stand in our own strength before this God or we will surely die. In this personal meeting with his people at Mount Sinai, God revealed to his people their need of an intermediary or an intercessor, one who could represent them to God, but who could also shelter them from his glory. And church, we still stand in need of this very same intermediary. God hasn't changed. And we asked if before, we asked if God's meeting with his people still demands isolation in the sense that we be utterly holy. And I believe the reality of this intermediary answers that question while revealing the depth of God's love. For as Moses promised the people, there would come a prophet. There would come a prophet who, like him, Moses, would stand before the people and speak God's words to them. He would come and stand for them enabling them to boldly enter God's presence. No longer would they need to fear God's righteousness. Why? Because this promised prophet would proclaim peace. Church, this promised prophet is Christ. And he wasn't merely a man like Moses, who Moses, despite being, as we're told, the humblest leader Israel ever had, still failed to keep his temper when he drew water from a rock and was subsequently prevented from entering into the promised land. No, this prophet would be fully man. So like us in every way, however, he would also be fully God and therefore without sin. He is completely perfect as God is perfect. Why? Because he's God. And thus he's able to speak God's words for he is the living word and to reveal God's person. As Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. 
But he's also able, as God, to cover our imperfections, taking our brokenness upon himself, and then he died in our place. For we all, we all like Israel before us, were we to stand before this God, the God of the Bible's glory, on our own, we would be consumed. This is why we need an intermediary. This is why God met personally with his people, interacting intimately with them in total isolation, and yet through an intermediary. God did all of this so that Israel might realize he is holy. There's no other God but the God of the Bible. And friends, the God of the Bible remains holy today, despite the nonchalant approach that so many here have today towards God and and religion. Yahweh remains awfully holy as Israel experienced him to be on Mount Sinai. And if we were left to ourselves, we would be utterly consumed, which is why God sent Jesus. He covers us with his righteousness. And thus, we who have repented of our sin and believed in him, we, church, don't miss this. We are now, we are now the very thing Sinai revealed. We are a sanctuary. We are the sanctuary church. Our bodies have become the site for God's dwelling with his people. Christian, if you are here this morning, here, God's Holy Spirit now fills you. We no longer need a tabernacle or a temple, both of which followed the events of Sinai, because Christ tore open that which had formerly separated us from God. As God the Son, Christ, as God the Son, He is now how we access God the Father by the enabling of God the Holy Spirit because He's God. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? I pray that if you're here today, you do. But if you still feel the fear that marked Israel as we've examined this text this morning, then then hear the gospel this morning. Hear the gospel. We've heard it. Hear it again. Christ died for your sins. He was buried and rose again, all according to the scriptures. So if you repent and believe, then you can know God. And you can, as the Israelites were enabled through Moses, you may also enter God's presence, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and live with him without fear. And church, for we who are gathered for the joy of celebrating our great God once a week, How amazing is our God, the God of the Bible, who meets personally with his people. Is he your intermediary? I hope and pray he is. Would you pray with me as we close to this end? Father God, you are holy. And in your word, you make clear that we cannot have relationship with you. We cannot know life apart from you. And the only way that we may stand in your presence is if Christ clothes us with his perfection. And Father, the gospel is the reality. It's the story, the means by which you made that possible for us by your grace through faith in Jesus. Thank you that we may stand in your presence. We may know life, that we have a redeemer who is Jesus, God's own son, 
precious Lamb of God, the Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, God our Father, for giving us your Son and leaving us your Spirit till the work you've called us to be about is done. God, this is the mission you have called us to be about. As we exalt you, God, we do so by evangelizing, equipping, and embracing nations. This is who we, be, we believe your word has shown us we are to be. God, might we more closely resemble and more fervently be about this Christ-exalting work. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.